Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with us Jay Diddy. If you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, hello everybody. I am Jeremy Cobb, uh, aka Jay Diddy on Discord. Uh, this, this, honestly, Friday, you're like the first person who has actually really commented on it. Uh, everyone else is just like, is that Jeremy? And I keep forgetting. <laughs> Jay Diddy, uh, for the listeners, uh, Jay Diddy is like a joke name that I came up with in fifth grade and then just kind of liked. So I've never, like, at this point, it's automatic to use. I don't even really think about it. I just think, oh, that's one of my sc- various screen names. There, there's Jay Diddy. And so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it brings me some delight to get called out in a public way like this. <laughs> this is great. With permission, with consent. But yes, um, of course. It's a consensual yeah. calling out. <laughs> yeah, I um my initial screen name like when I was back in AOL days um was uh Friday is Tuesday. And I don't know why or what I came up with that, but then it became is Friday and then uh, that's been pretty much it since and now it's you know, now it's my trans name. So I don't know, the evolution of People calling me Friday online for like years and years. I really identified that with who I was because there was no barrier to yeah. me presenting a certain way a lot of the time. And often, actually, when I was in the closet a lot, people would ask me what my gender was because they were confused about it. That should have been the sign. That should have, <laughs> that should have, you know, I was looking right at it, but I didn't realize. <laughs> Did you experience like euphoria when people would say like, oh, uh, what is your gender when they weren't sure? Yeah, I, you know, and I didn't know what it was at the time because, like, Mm -hmm. of course, I was, you know, in the military for so long. And, like, prior to that, I was, you know, I had so much self-loathing because I wasn't, like, as masculine as... Um, I would be praised to be by my by my dad. I have a ton of daddy issues. We don't have to get into my daddy issues, but <laughs> rest assured, they're there. You know, I'm in therapy though. I'm, in therapy. <laughs> I'm like, you just mentioned the military, and I'm like, man, I want to talk about because I've I, I struggle in like really masculine spaces as well. So I'm really right. interested to know like what it's like to be a, a trans person in the military. Uh, well, with how how masculine that environment I imagine can be. That's wild. Yeah, it's I was super deep in the closet. You know, like when um, you know, have you seen like being John Malkovich where you like mm-hmm. open the closet door and it's like deep into someone's yeah. mind? Like that's how deep into the closet I was. I was like traveling through the abyss in order to mm-hmm. reach like how deep into the closet I was. Um to like sort of fit in and like my role being a a marine and like sort of existing in that space nothing was ever good enough out of what i did um Mm. to sort of satisfy feeling like a man and i still had body image issues like whenever i looked at myself and i was never muscular enough i was never fit enough i was never anything like i didn't like the way that i looked ever and come to find out of course it's because i didn't have a woman's body but um you know it was it was just difficult for me and I didn't understand why like I would I was really a man's man kind of uh person like I was the or a company man if you want to call it that in that I really as much as possible tried to reinforce the status quo which is very problematic in a lot of ways in the military that we don't have to necessarily talk about because it's mm. generally top down structure yeah. structured by old white guys um yes. but yes and it reinforces a lot of uh you know racism but anyway, um, and other things and imperialism, but you know, mm. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. But anyway, all that to say, we like, got to do another podcast to talk <laughs> about this because this is all so interesting. But yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, um, when I first got into the Marine Corps, I actually got into the Marine Corps on a waiver because I was a bad kid, which is a totally different podcast. 
But oh, I dang. had there was a general that signed my waiver to get in the Marine Corps, and when they when I joined the Marine Corps, um, they said, "Hey, if you join the Marine Corps, you'll just do whatever job that we give you because you really want to be a Marine, right?" And I was like, "Yes." So I am one of the few people you will ever meet that actually went open contract into the Marine Corps, um, and I, they just gave me a job. So I I got aviation ordnance. I used to build rockets, bombs, and helo gun systems. Um, mm. And I changed my job after a while to uh, infantry, and I did that for a while. Um, and I went to, like, spec off selection for Marine Special Operations. I tried that. Whoa. I tried I tried reconnaissance for quite a while. I tried that. I, got, I was a non-select in Special Ops um, assessment and selection. It was like a six-week program that kind of mirrored the Green Beret program. Mm. Um, and it crushed me. Like, we started with, like, 150 people, and we ended with about 50. And then we – I was, like, one of the 20 that didn't get selected. Um, oh, okay. And it was but just, But you like, made it to the end. They just didn't yeah. select you? Yeah, I was oh, okay. just weeping just as a the masculine man just weeping in the van in the white van after they put the goggles on my face and you know to not know where i was going and like they drove me away but yeah anyway so i that's like I was, <laughs> this is all so interesting i saw I was, just as a side note before we move on i actually heard about the green beret by seeing one of their graduations uh back in the day uh the the church that i grew up in we used to do a thing called bible quizzing where we would learn a bunch of bible verses and then go to a church or convention center and then answer questions about them and if you buzz in before you get to answer it's actually highly competitive it is like the closest thing to like a, a sport that you have in a lot of like really conservative churches um and my pastor was big into like military stuff and we went down we went i think there was a tournament in florida i can't i think it was in florida somewhere in the southern united states and we went and saw we went to like one of the uh a one of the green beret army bases and we actually saw a graduation and i still remember like them singing like the green beret song and i still remember part of it and it was like dang because i'd never heard of it but i was like oh apparently this is like the the hardest of the hardcore u.s yeah. army and i've just never heard of these people and it was yeah. it, it, they seemed like an intense bunch they uh, are especially what I've heard about since. So I can only yeah. imagine how brutal even the the selection training must have been to to do something that's like even parallel to them. That's really yeah. interesting. It's under the uh, special operations umbrella, and most SOCOM like umbrella style teams are really on the same level because they are all sort of supervised by SOCOM in some way. They each have their own organizations, but they're at the same professional level, I should say. Um, MARSOC mm. is not as established because they're new to the gig. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, it's to say that it's like their selection pool is all Marines. So it's like, you know, the, the physical standards and the mental standards are really high and everything mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, it's and, and definitely the it, those people that you saw for the Green Bray graduation. And the reason why you've never heard of them is because they stopped making Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. But um, also <laughs> <laughs> um, but also because uh, they have like a sort of culture of being a quiet professional. Um and Green Berets really look down on sort of exceptionalizing or uh, sensationalizing what it is that they do. Um, mm. And they primarily work with, or at least when you, if you talk to someone that's really into or pro US military, they will describe to you like what those sort of uh, 
military cells do with people who cannot fend for themselves. Like, for instance, when I was working um, as an operations chief uh, and we were in Spain and we were sending missions to various countries in Africa, and a lot of those uh, groups that our platoon, infantry platoons were training were fighting um, like Al-Qaeda elements and, and other sort of terrorist organizations and mm-hmm. trying to deal with... Um, I, the various cells of uh, ISIS and ISIL, um, mm-hmm. you know, years ago. So a lot of what the Americans go through when they try to work in those teams is what they believe is like an honorable cause. So like it's sort of that warrior ethos mentality that um, we're going to do these things for people that can't fight for or fend for themselves Mm -hmm. or we're going to help other people fight better. And that's why it's so crushing for a lot of these military veterans who served in Afghanistan like I did and to Mm -hmm. see like the way that some of the policies and the decisions made with the Trump administration when they pulled out the way that they did and they essentially abandoned so many people to um, the Taliban who now rules and they're under Sharia law and women don't have rights again and all Mm. of this terrible stuff within Afghanistan. So, yeah, it's a very deep conversation for our tabletop podcast. (laughs) Let's put a had like a very distant sort of interest in uh military history and and uh military culture and so forth um even a little bit of a family connection my uncle uh is british and he was in i think the british equivalent of the green beret which for oh, whatever yeah. reason SAS? the name escaped yes sas special air for uh, special air service yeah he's an sas uh member or was not anymore but yeah, yeah. yeah i love that <laughs> yeah yeah uh but at this like I, he's never really gone into detail about the kinds of stuff that he went through and experienced and so forth. And obviously yeah. he left before nine 11. So, uh, cause he had, he has various health issues. So he wasn't even able to continue as long as he mm-hmm. wanted to. But, uh, so I, I think he did see some, he might've seen some kind of action, but it was, I don't think Britain was engaged in a, a war at the time, but even so that stuff yeah. was all fascinating to me. Almost as fascinating as TTRPGs. <laughs> As we shift over. (laughs) Yeah, um, a lot of the uh, people who operate in the special operations community, they are generally maintaining relationships between countries. And Mm. say, for instance, we have like a good relationship with a country in South America or Africa or Asia or wherever it might be. There's a lot of cooperative training that happens when war is not going on. And then there's a lot of... um, Basically, like, you can't tell anybody about this type of uh, operations that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 25 years is the limit of statutes on that, generally, like, across the board. Uh, so we had a lot of uh, people within the community or that I had exposure to who, like, had done stuff, like, 20 years ago. And they were like, well, in five years, I can talk about that thing I did in South America. But... <laughs> You know, that, oh, that, no. that sort of, and like, <laughs> like it's, it's kind of weird. It was, it was weird for me, like as a young corporal when I was 23 years old to like be in that training program and like to meet people that were like basically like caricatures or tropes from cartoons. And mm-hmm. I was just like, you exist. Like there was a, <laughs> there was like a 65 year old man who was like ruck marching and like doing the obstacle course like as fast as us 20 year olds and i'm just like this guy has to be on hgh like there's no fucking way like 
Yeah, I honestly it would not surprise me if there's a, a fair amount of PED usage in parts of the armed forces. Like even if it's just like physical recovery stuff, I would yeah. imagine just being able to conti- if you're on like a mission, being able to consistently keep up your stamina and strength day after day under harsh conditions. Uh, I, I imagine that would be very, very helpful in those in those circumstances. Yeah, that's actually um, something that's very against the rules in the military. However, in the special operations community, there is sometimes some scandals that happen uh, that primarily mm-hmm. deal with aciation, those types of performance enhancing drugs, because indeed um, they are the yeah. closest things to like NBA or NFL um, level mm-hmm. athletes that we have in the military. And everybody like probably in like the infantry or the, um, you know, the, the semi pro level are more at like the collegiate level as far as like athletes in some respects. Um, of course, where our sport is very different. Um, but like, I, I wouldn't say that, like if I was to say to you that it's actually the standard for you to be able to take your 120 pound pack and march 20 miles with it, and like that is a part of your requirement of your job, um, to do your job, like that can is would be considered like extremely difficult if you didn't train for it, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah, I, I, I wa- months of training to be able to pull something like that off. That's intense. Yeah, yeah, and like. I, I went on a walk this morning now that I'm not in the military anymore. And I like walked for three miles and I was like, yeah, that was a pretty good workout. Like <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm a couple years out and my hair is long and I changed my gender, you know, it's, it's nice. Mm-hmm. It's nice to just be able to, to walk and like, enjoy that instead of like, Oh, here we go. Walking up this mountain again, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it's one of the things uh, I've been playing in a couple of campaigns recently uh, and trying to figure out there was, uh, I was actually just in a stream to today uh where i'm playing a kender character uh and i was looking at how much weight this dude is carrying and it's like probably more than he weighs uh but it's really interesting to get a little bit of perspective like well in the military uh you're gonna be carrying quite a bit uh people talk about like medieval knights and how heavy armor was but like nah that stuff's distributed it's not all in a bag on your back that's a whole other deal yeah, it's a it's a real problem for your long term health. I know a lot of people in the infantry who actually got out of the military shorter because the amount of weight that is pressed uh, from your shoulders and your spine actually compresses your spine, mm. and it like basically just gives you a ton of health problems. Um, I only had one really major injury, like which is a shoulder uh, subplex. It was a partial dislocation of my left shoulder. Mm. Actually happened underwater. It was. It was kind of a weird situation. So I was in um, some training where we were like passing bricks while treading water uh, in like a formation in the water in the pool. Mm-hmm. And um, periodically they would make us drop the bricks and then we'd go get the bricks and then we'd come back up. And uh, treading water with like weight or whatever can be difficult, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I was coming back up and we had uh, always put our arms over our heads with our fists clenched to make sure that you didn't come up under somebody and get knocked out that way because obviously that, that could potentially happen. So it's to prevent you from getting knocked out and then you're knocked out underwater and then you drown, right? So my arm was extended and I came up under somebody and they kicked my shoulder out of its socket um, by just treading water because they were treading water there. So I heard it pop and went, whoa. And then I came up to the surface and I was just like, oh, that sucks. And uh, I told the instructor and he was like, I don't fucking care. Like (laughs) he thought I was whining or something. And so I was like, and I had to like explain to him, like while I was like sucking water, I was just like my shoulder dislocated. And he was like, go see the corpsman. And I like kind of 
paddled over there. And it was difficult to paddle over there because I was fucking exhausted uh, from mm. all the training we were doing that day. So, and, and the, we called it the beehive and there was like 20 to 40 people in our formation. And because they're all treading water, it actually sucks you in. Um, and that was the problem and why I came up under that guy. But it took me a long time to get to the, um, to the edge of the, the pool. And I got out or whatever. And as I got out, my shoulder popped back in. And then I saw the corpsmen and they were like, okay, can you like show me like your limited range of motion? Or like, can you show me like what you're doing? And I was like, it's like I barely lift my arm at all. And I was like, it really fucking hurts. Like I do, I cannot move this arm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I think you just jarred it really hard. I think you're going to be fine. And then I, so I got it back in the pool and then I finished the day in training and I only literally only had one arm to finish that day. And we were doing like rescue drags later oh, at, no. and shit like that. But, um, yeah, I finished that day. I finished, I finished that day. And then, um, and then the next day I couldn't move <laughs> my shoulder. I was like, you know, and then I had to go to the doctor and get yeah. therapy and everything. And then and your then body's was, like, we tried to tell you something was wrong yesterday. We're going <laughs> to make sure you listen today. Uh, I actually have two points uh, in response to that. The first one, you, the story that you just told, uh, the, the, the way that you told it reminded me of speaking of athletes. Um, there was an interview with Ronda Rousey uh, of MMA slash WWE now fame, uh, where she was talking about her days in judo. Uh, cause she was like a judo bronze medalist at the Olympics. She was like a world class judo ist, uh, before she went into MMA. And she was talking about how one time somebody got her in an arm bar and she felt her shoulder dislocate. And she thought to herself, Oh, well, it's out now. Might as well just keep going. Can't get any worse. And then yeah. it popped back in and then popped back out again. <laughs> and she was like, so it actually could get worse, but I still won the fight. Uh, and that's why you just, yeah. you're like, you're like, well, I was swimming and then a guy kicked my arm so hard it moved, it fell out of its socket. And then I had to swim back to shore with one arm. And as I got out, it popped back in and you know, I finished the day. <laughs> like, what? Uh, that's a, that's a whole other world. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to mention, which, uh, hopefully also can serve as a little bit of a transition is we were talking about, uh, when you talk about the strain, the physical strain and how that over time can shorten people careers in the military um, that can apply to acting as well not usually but uh it's relevant in this case because two people who have been on three black halflings the show that i'm most well known for very frequently were actually cast members of warhorse both Jasper William Cartwright, my co-host, and Jonathan Charles, who plays with us and composes music for our actual play shows, um, and was actually on one or two episodes of our talk show as well. He, uh, both of them, they met on the show War Horse, which uh, involves a huge amount of physical stress because you are carrying people around uh, like on top of you for an hour plus at a time, and you're doing this for a couple, like for five, I think it's anywhere from six to eight times a week that you could be doing this consistently over and over. And that show actually had to institute rules. I forget exactly what the rules were, but they had so many injuries that they had to start, like, I think legally, they could only require people to tour for so long before it actually became a real problem. And I think, I know that both Jasper and Johnny had stories about injuries that I believe they and others sustained while on that tour, because it is more show than most uh, acting performances. That show is physically punishing. 
Yeah, I totally believe that because, I mean, you're only going to perform at the level that you've trained to, um, mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing physically or like mentally or whatever the challenge is. And you really fall back on your training in so many different disciplines. And um, if you're not physically prepared to do all that, you can't do a long term. And the way to think about like physical activities or even mental activities as far as like your endurance or your stamina is that if you are going beyond what you can physically do long term or what's easy for you, then you are mm -hmm. just putting like little chinks in your armor and eventually it's going to fall apart. Eventually, yeah. like it's going to be a bridge too far for you and like your body's going to quit. So yeah. um, I find that most people actually their bodies will quit before their minds quit. That's what mm -hmm. we, of course, found in the Marine Corps a lot of the time is like guys would still be like trying to overcome all these injuries. I once saw a guy whose knee popped out on a leadership course for infantry unit leaders course. They popped it back in and like three days later he was training again. And I was just like, that's Ooh. fucking nuts. Like yeah. I have it's it's wild. Like that's not good. it's not it's not. And it's just one of those things where um when you're so passionate about something and of course when you're a little bit younger um mm -hmm. you know i was considered like the old old guy in the marine corps oh, after man. i hit 30 which was terrifying because we would have like these 18 to 21 or like you know we'd have sergeants that were like 24 and shit and we were just like these motherfuckers are so fast like <laughs> and yeah. i'm like over here like i've just aged so much and i'm just like <laughs> i'm like bent my my broken ass back like everybody that was like <laughs> Everybody that was uh, like a, a staff sergeant or a platoon sergeant in the Marine Corps at that point when, uh, you know, right when you get to that time where you've been in for like 10 or more years, you've got some injuries that have accrued over time. Like you've got some stuff that's like followed you because mm -hmm. at various points you've just had to continue in order to keep working. And there was such a an unfortunate necessary, I suppose, in a lot of ways for their structure, how they justify it. There's such a culture of ableism within the military in that I had so much self-loathing whenever I got injured because of how much shame that we put on people uh, that were ever injured or didn't fight through something or didn't continue. And to a degree, like, it's really understandable because obviously, like, you get injured and you're on a patrol or you're in combat or something like that's okay. Well, fucking suck it up. Like you yeah. need to get this done anyway. But then yeah. at the same time, like it can, it can really become malicious in the military, how much ableism that there is. So it's a very delicate balance that not every leader actually achieved, I would say mm -hmm. in the military. And I would, yeah, and I can see that for stage theater as well, because I think some directors can be probably intense in that situation. Yeah. Yes. Uh, both, both physically and especially emotionally and psychologically. I think you really, but there is absolutely a culture of performing injured in, in the performing arts. Uh, my agent used to be a dancer and he's like the number of times that I performed at a hundred percent, possibly less than 30% of the performances that I've ever done. I almost always had something wrong. Uh, and that's like wild to consider, uh, the amount of strength. I mean, it's, it's one of those reasons why, like, whenever I talk to somebody who's a dancer, by the time they're like in their twenties and thirties, it seems like the knees and hips have started to already have serious problems. And I imagine it's because of the intense strain that they're put on or put under from a very young age and years and years and years of that often while they're growing, which is probably even worse yeah. than if you start doing it when you're like 18. Uh, but yeah, that stuff and that, that culture is absolutely like the show must go on push through it it's it's changing in a lot of ways 
these days, but certainly that I definitely have that mentality. If it's as long, it, my thinking is usually as long as you're not in a position where you are physically or unable to do it. Like, um, you just, you flat out can't, you should try. Uh, that's that, that the, the shows the one of the last, one of my favorite shows that I've ever done. In fact, I, uh, I was just saying to you off mic, uh, I've been in a lot of musicals and musical type shows since graduating drama school, but I am myself not a singer and have not had the years and years of essentially voice training, uh, like almost like strength training for your voice to build up that, uh, that, stamina and so my voice i think even on average burns out quicker than most people's does just naturally i think i get it from my mom and because she has the same problem but i on this show which was already like a what we would refer to as a big sing like there's a lot of singing in the show and it's a lot of high powerful singing and within like the first two weeks i got um i got sick I got like a head cold, which of course starts to batter your voice even more. And yeah. now I'm having to perform sick. And my voice through that tour was dreaded. Uh, it got so bad that at one point, like there were multiple times where my voice during my big ending solo would just start to give out entirely. Uh, and luckily one time we were performing at a school of kids and they all knew the song I was singing. I was singing like Eye of the Tiger and the whole school just spontaneously started singing it with me, which was nice and heartwarming. But like I was in a sense performing injured, like the physical, uh, the physical part, the part of my body that needed that I needed to perform just flat out wasn't working and it got so bad that I had to for like the second to last day just not even perform um and actually I know that uh I hope I don't think Jasper would mind me saying this he had a similar situation on the show that he just did over Christmas where he got sick and his voice and body were like nah bro we can't be doing this and so he had a thing where I think there were multiple days he got so sick he had to like go to the emergency room I think at one point uh there and there were multiple days where the director had to step in and that's that's the point at which like that's the mentality that we left drama school with unless it's to the point where you literally cannot do it you gotta do it you gotta make it happen because there's too much at stake your other fellow performers are counting on you you gotta go in there and give it 110 percent every time uh and that is that is absolutely the culture so i think though it is perhaps the stakes are not as high uh, at least in terms of the cost of human life and perhaps the severity of injury that we would be talking about i think the culture in theater is actually pretty similar to the culture in the military uh, even down to basic training, which in my case, in most actors' cases, would be drama school if you're British. Um, they yeah. it is common for those for those uh, schools to have a well, again, less so these days. It has changed or is changing, and a lot of it has changed. But it is common for them to have the mindset that they need to break you down in order to build you back up, and that means like break you down emotionally, psychologically, break not just break you of your bad habits, break you down so that they can be rebuild you in their image and it really at least for me and i know for multiple other people it can it is a form of trauma uh that can take a lot to try and and get past um for me there's still elements where i'm like uh i, I it created like insecurities or or senses of like uh yeah i would say insecurity in my own in a sense of lost uh, a sense of uh a sense of loneliness and being lost 
I think, uh, where by the time I graduated, actually halfway through drama school, I'd given up on being an actor because I was like, I must not be good enough. I must not be able to do it just because it was the process was so intense. And then I just figured I might as well finish because I'm here. And even this is better. I, at least I'm pursuing a dream, even if I don't believe that dream can ever occur. And then thankfully I did actually have some success upon graduating, but that I think the mentality is pretty similar there. Uh, yeah. Thankfully not as brutal in TTRPGs. It's a lot lighter <laughs> in my experience in the, in the sphere of TTRPGs. It is much more of a kid glove situation. If you are yeah. sick, they'll be like, Oh yeah, take some time off. You know, is that sort of thing. You just made me realize something and absolutely the break them down, build it back up. That's why I was so far in the fucking closet. Honestly, was I attached so much worth to what they built me back up into because I tried to cling really to that identity of like how my drill instructors like shaped me into mm-hmm. a person. Holy shit. I need to talk to my therapist about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, I imagine it's like in those environments that what they build you into is I imagine the closest thing to a life raft that you have. It's like you are not only receiving uh, feedback from your authority figures that this is what you need to be. But like, you probably can't even survive in environments like that unless you, as I would imagine, uh, both the military and drama school, in my experience, there are some people who really, it's a, it can be sink or swim sometimes. And some people absolutely do sink or at least run the risk of sinking. And it, it's unless you have that mentality of like, I'm going to work as hard as I can all the time. Uh, I'm going to push through anything that's getting in my way. Nah, show must go on. This is the priority. I have to be this person that I have because this. If I'm not this, then I failed. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right. A there lot with of you. a lot of. And tell me if this is true. Then is there a lot of value and your value placed upon your accomplishments or your shows or like getting the gigs? Is that really associated? It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's uh, the. I think the difference between acting in the military is. Acting is slightly less, I, I would say acting is less merit focused in the sense that you can be really, really, and this is something they tell you, despite all of the training and work that you've put in, it doesn't necessarily matter unless you get lucky or whether you have, unless people want to work with you. Those are like the two things. You have to be somebody that people want to work with and you also have to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. And so there is absolutely a sense of like, uh, are you, are you working that absolute, I think for many actors, that is the temptation is to define yourself by what successes you've had. And certainly within high actors, there's a hierarchy where like the actor who has done the most, depending on the set and depending on the environment may have a stronger sense of like, yes, I am an actor than the other actors who are trying to, you know, toiling at a quote unquote lower level of the industry, at least in terms of pay and uh, mainstream exposure. But there is, it is a struggle, I think for most actors because most of acting is failing. Like most of acting is failing to get a job uh, over yeah. and over and over dozens turns into hundreds turns into thousands over a long enough period of time. If you're constantly auditioning, if you're even lucky enough to be getting auditions uh, that you have to really come to terms with. It's like a weird thing. You have to come to terms with failure and rejection and and find a way to like process it in a way that you're not taking it personally which also kind of goes at odds with like the, you're not good enough. You have to change all these things about yourself in order to get better that you just had for several years. So that it creates a weird, I mean, look, a lot, a whole lot of actors are in therapy for a reason. Uh, and that is definitely one of the reasons is the, uh, the, the constant rejection 
uh, that feels like it's a personal thing a lot of the time. Um, for me personally, the rejection was never, I would get sad sometimes, like if I really wanted to part, but I had watched enough videos and spoken to enough people of actors talking about like, look, it is what it ultimately comes down to often is just who is right for the role, who fits. Sometimes it's not even you. It's that the person they hired doesn't look the way that they'd want with you. Maybe they're a little bit taller and you're a little bit shorter, et cetera, et cetera. You may have been the best actor there and you may have played the part better than the person who got it, but they got it because they fit what they were doing better, what the people were doing better. So uh, with that in mind, that part wasn't difficult for me as so much. There were times when I would be sad if I it felt like I really went for something and just didn't get it. But what was frustrating for me, as I was telling you just before the show, was that I felt like I wasn't getting into the rooms. Uh, I wasn't, it, uh, I guess it would be the, the similar thing when the military would be, I guess if you were trying to be a career military person and for whatever reason, you couldn't even get considered for promotion. Uh, and for me, it's like, I, I love theater. I love plays. I love movies. I love TV. I love art, performing arts in general. And the stuff that I watch is the stuff I want to be in. Like the stuff I love is the stuff that I really want to be in. And I wasn't getting to even try out for it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a matter. Yeah, go ahead. Jeremy. Can I? Yeah. I'm going to be vulnerable for you on this podcast. Are you ready for this? That's why I'm not in the Marine Corps anymore. Whoa. Really? Yeah. Were you trying, were you, were you interested in going career and you kept getting passed over? Yeah. I got, well, I got in trouble when I was a staff sergeant. I didn't do anything non-ethical. I just did something that apparently you're not allowed to do according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. But, mm. <laughs> which by the way, sodomy is still legal, which is like, okay, whatever. But, um, uh, why? Yeah. That's what it, <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, it's it, all this shit was written like fucking 90 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I got in trouble for something essentially as a staff sergeant. It was like the first time I got in major trouble. I was always kind of like a person in the military as evidenced by me joining the Marine Corps on a waiver. I was always mm -hmm. kind of a person that was very headstrong and like I do the things that I do, but I always try to be like morally ethical or whatever. Eventually, mm -hmm. like I got the book thrown at me for like something silly that I'm not going to talk about in this podcast. But if I was to explain mm -hmm. it to you, I'll explain it off the pod. But it was silly. And mm -hmm. I was there as like a 30 year old man, like weeping as I was being uh, taking this non-judicial punishment. I was the rookie recruiter of the year. And then I was the recruiter of the year at this command when I got in trouble. Um, so you were crushing it. Yeah. You were completely I, crushing it. When I showed up, and this is, and this is what people who like maybe see me on my online space or like my presence online and they're like, who the fuck is this person and why do they act like that? I'm the person that went into my commanding officer's office and I told him day one, I was like, I'm going to be your number one recruiter. And then I was. I'm that mm. mother. I'm that bitch. So. Mm -hmm. Wait, so when I operate in like the, the tabletop industry and like this space or whatever, and I showed up and I'm like, I'm going to be a very successful professional GM. And like when I'm working on the mm -hmm. vineyard, I'm like, this is going to be the number one book of 2023. Mm -hmm. Like that's my mentality. That's who I am as a person because I have a lot of trauma and then also mm -hmm. I'm fucked up, but that's like how, that's how I am. But yeah, I did get, because I got in trouble, it's a career killer. Once you're a staff NCO, once you get to E6 and up, it's a career killer. So I mm -hmm. knew after I got in trouble, I had like two and a half years left on my contract. I was going to get passed over no matter what I did. That isn't to say that I did like stellar after that. I was just, I was just average because at that point I was just like, okay, what else am I doing with my life? And then I started going to college. I started exploring what I wanted to do about six to eight months. 
before I got out, I was like, okay, where do I take my life? And I decided tabletop. I actually auditioned for a D&D show, <laughs> like, Whoa. while I was in the military. And, like, I was waiting to get out. And I had, like, five months. And I knew I wasn't going to get deployed um, or, like, go away on training missions or anything. Because I was they were literally just giving me time. And they were being nice to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that was, like, my first exposure to, like, being in the tabletop space. I was, prior to that... Throughout my entire career, ever since I was a teenager, I was really involved in text-based roleplay. And I, you know, should have seen it. Red flag. I always played women. Um, (laughs) But, you know, and it was like my separate identity that I really relied on to, like, feel like myself and get that euphoria. Should have seen it. Red flag. But anyway... You know, uh, that's how I got my start. And like, yeah, so I fully understand that feeling and like putting everything into it and not getting in the room. And, you know, so I I can feel that. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm sorry you had to go through that because as somebody who has gone through a version of it, it is it ain't easy. Uh, it ain't easy out well, here. Let me let me just say I've never been fucking happier in my life than to be out of the military and also be a woman. So <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. totally OK with everything now. <laughs> but it was rough then. It was rough. it was rough for a little while there, yeah. Yeah, uh, for me it was the year I graduated. In fact, I went and saw a play at the Royal Court, and there was a, a young woman in the play who I was like, "Man, she seems like young." And I looked her up after the play, and the play was real good. It was a really cool play. I really liked it. I'm like, "Yeah, that's the kind of theater I'd like to do." And then I looked it up. I looked her up, and it turns out she had graduated that year, same as me. And wow. she got to somehow, now she, the school she went to was the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is like the number one big name school in Britain when it comes to drama schools, uh, along with like the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, Lambda, uh, or Central School of Speech and Drama, um, which is uh, also up there. And there's like a couple of others. I went to Rose Bruford College of Theater and Performance, which is a very respected school, but simply does not, especially the course that I was on, does not set you up with the names and connections that you'd be able to easily transition into something like what she did. And I'm looking and I'm like, I am, we have graduated the same time. She did not beat me for this part. She just got the part. I didn't know the show was happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't have even lost the part because yeah. I didn't have access to even finding out about it. Uh, yeah. and that, that was a trend that continued over the next couple of years where the shows that I wanted to do, I just didn't even get called in. There was literally, I think, one and a half shows that I auditioned for that in my brain, I said, oh, this is the kind of thing I'd actually really like to do. Um, And in one, I think in both, in one case, I got recalled and then they ended up going with somebody else. In another case, they said we liked his audition, but it was just the way he interpreted the character was different than what we wanted. But I came away from those feeling like, okay, but if I had enough of those, I feel like I could get one because those people, they like me. Uh, and I, I, for whatever reason, managed to audition pretty well on a consistent basis. But like, I just couldn't get into the room. And I felt like the longer I went on, the more my resume started to get filled out with other shows that were the kinds of shows I didn't want to do. Those are then the kinds of shows that people are going to try and get you for they're going to say oh that this actor has experience in these areas and i'm like yes but i didn't want it you see 
<laughs> and but unfortunately, it becomes your career almost becomes a little bit of a prison. Uh, and this, I think what I was experiencing was probably a much lesser version of, say, what a lot of child actors experience as they try to transition into adult roles where they have to fight to be seen as somebody who is not a little kid or who isn't, you know, that little cherub who was in Wizards of Waverly Place or whatever, yeah. you know, Disney Channel show they were on. Um, and I, I didn't really, I was not sure of how to break out of that and as i was struggling to break out of that that was when the pandemic hit and that was when it, it and the longer the pandemic went on the more it sunk into me that i'm like i really don't enjoy touring i don't enjoy doing the shows that i've been doing i was just about to go and do book of mormon for a year that would have I, the more i thought about it i'm like nah this show's racist and i don't want to do it and also like look i'm all about i'm all about criticizing religion i think that's fine but like ugh, some of this stuff is vicious to where it's like this is this goes beyond like hey the way your religion is run is wrong or your beliefs are harmful to like straight up like hateful to the religion and i'm like this starts to make me uncomfortable as well like i'm in a racist musical seeing some blasphemous stuff and then on top of that, I'd be touring for a full year. And I, I didn't, what I didn't see is at the end of it, I did not see an opportunity to then be like, well, now I've done this. Now it's time to go off and do the stuff I did. I didn't, I didn't see that happening because it had been happening all this time. And so as that was, ha all I, as I was having those thoughts, uh, three black halflings started and three black halflings to get kind of into a slightly more business oriented side of things was, uh, it, I would say it was a mixture of ideology and practicality uh i i was not the one who came up with the idea originally it was originally jasper uh whom i had met doing a play the year before and whom i had kind of gotten into DD. he'd played it like once or twice years prior but i got him really into the game and then he started to dm and he invited me to uh play in his games because i was kind of the dm that got him into it and so we had kind of a DD relationship and we would have all these chats after a campaign that we were co DMing during lockdown and he happened to go online and see if there was any he, he looked up on YouTube black D&D and the only thing that really came up was the Terry Crews uh, geek and sundry one shot and he's yeah. like well that's a hole that's a hole in the industry right there and Jasper and I both black we both know and love D&D <laughs> so it's like we can fill that hole and uh, that was the mentality that's and then we my were like hole. <laughs> <laughs> that's our hole Jasper let's fill it together <laughs> <laughs> you Let's first dive in head first. first. <laughs> we go at the same time, like <laughs> yeah. I, I think. Look, uh, it may be a little tight, but we can squeeze through. I'm sure. In fact, we should. And we recorded one episode. It didn't work, so we decided to add a third person. All three of us squeeze right through that hole. Uh, and that was that was kind of how Three Black Halflings started. It started as a mixture of us being like, there is a lack of D and D content, which means there's a hole to be filled practically, but also. Like, there's a lot of criticisms that we have of the lore and culture of nerd culture in general and of D&D &D in particular and fantasy, the fantasy genre as we know it. So let's make a show talking about that and our feelings on that. And so it was kind of a mixture of ideology and, to, and commerce, I guess, to an extent, even though I don't think we anticipated making money off of the show right away. Uh, we didn't even launch with a Patreon. We, we didn't start a Patreon until it was a couple months in. Um, but, and that was even like a decision. Like we were like, we, should we do one? Really? Two months in? That's fast. Two or three months in. Yeah. Well, we wow. got, look, it helps when you are three black people talking about racism in the summer of 2020. 
there was there was a lot of timing that hit and we yeah. got very very lucky with the some big name people yeah exactly some big name people yeah. happened to hear about the show early on rick perry i always shout him out was one of the first people to start listening to our show if you're not familiar with rick perry if you like dimension 20 he does the sets both physical and digital i believe for dimension 20 he's also the coolest dude also rick perry actually be on the show i'm recording with him next month oh so- nice Tell him I said hi. I will most definitely. Yeah. And tell him I said thank you as well. (laughs) Because through him, literally, I think he's the one who hooked us up with Lou Wilson's number. Like our email. I think we, I think that's how we got Lou Wilson's email. Uh, and that's like a piece of gold. Lou Wilson isn't even on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We got so lucky. And it was like the, uh, Rick Perry, then Jeff Kanata, uh, who has, he's the DM for Dungeon Run and does a lot of other podcasts. He was one of our first guests. Uh, we managed to snag Alan Cudicho early on, uh, the creator uh, and essentially head developer at the Wagadu Chronicles. Uh, a number of like key people. We had Brennan Lee Mulligan on within like the first four months of the show, four or five months. I think yeah. we interviewed him in like October or November of yeah. 2020, and we'd started in we'd started posting episodes like in June, like late June. Yeah. Uh, so that was. I never even anticipated that we would have had that I would have that Brennan Lee Mulligan would have known our show existed ever when we first started. But we were very, very fortunate to have a number of key people start listening early on. And it's sort of built. And while that was happening and within months of starting this show, I'm now talking to like my inspiration to play D&D in the first place. And the whole my my whole DMing approach was inspired by the way that he DM'd, uh, especially on Fantasy High. That was the first one that I'd seen. But I've seen obviously all the other ones since. I, uh, that was like, I saw in, in acting, no matter what I try, I can't seem to get anything like that. I really, really, I can't even get in the room consistently for the stuff I actually want. And in TTRPGs, I'm that blonde actress. I'm that yeah. blonde actress I saw. I just yeah. popped out and suddenly, oh, look, I happened to walk into a perfect setup. And now I'm in these rooms that other people didn't even know were possible to get into. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, you're the blonde bombshell of the industry. Well, how's it feel? Thank you, Friday. Thank you. Uh, it, I feel buxom. I feel, uh, I feel buxom and, uh, I feel buxom and desired and it's wonderful. That's, that's the dream for me, really. Like, I'm going to live vicariously through you until I get to that status. <laughs> I'm actually curious and I, I have no, I'm, I'm, I'm very, this, this is a, this is a, I think more of an insider talk situation because I don't think people consider this. I know for a fact that while being black certainly has its disadvantages, also, especially in a more progressive space, people want to cast black people in their shows and want to have black people in their shows. So I know for a fact that in and in all three of our cases uh, who have been on Three Black Halflings, we have had opportunities in part because of our race. Because people have said, oh, I want to not only I want to support these people because they're doing something good, but also it makes me look good to be allying myself with these black people. Have you experienced that as a trans person at all Uh, where people have said uh, it's kind of the same vibe, do you think? Does that cut that way as well? Um, Great fucking question. Um, First of all, I have to I have to. I have this conversation with my girlfriend who's black all the Mm -hmm. time because there is so many parallels from how people treat us um, Mm. in progressive spaces and non-progressive spaces because my girlfriend uh, is 
fetishized a lot by people or in tokenized mm-hmm. a lot. And mm-hmm. those people just don't realize that they're doing it. And mm-hmm. it feels weird and it seems weird. And she puts on like a face, her mask, right, to deal with it because she's used to it. She's, you know, we're in Washington State. There's so there's not very many black people in Washington mm-hmm. State. So um, she deals with it all the time, just on a daily basis, like all the time, these microaggressions. Um, she dated someone that used to tell her to not talk black and like, you know what I mean? And she was with that person for years. And like, there's so much like self-loathing with, from her experience because of where she grew up and like Mm. just her exposure to other people. And, and I really, in some ways it's, it's not the same, but there is some parallel to like my experience of like, um, how I view myself and how other people view me and how other people will interact with me very much like it, there, there are some parallels, but of course it's not the same um, <clears throat> as we, oh my gosh, my voice, hold on. I need to clear myself. Uh, as I, you know, chug this energy drink prior to recording with Jeremy Cobb, to, I, I actually, I actually like, before we even came on, I was just like, Jeremy Cobb came in and was like, just, just machine gunning me just all this energy and i was just like okay i need to go get an energy drink so i went and got that and i came back now my throat's all dry so (laughs) but (laughs) yeah so i i would say that here's well here's the thing i don't really get cast in shows and as soon as i say that on the podcast maybe like people reach out because me nobody like reaches out to me to cast in shows Mm. um I am not actively seeking shows. I put mm-hmm. shows together um, mostly. And people in general have been very gracious talking to me and stuff like that. I'm very thankful that I've had the mentors that I've had in the industry thus far. And I definitely would not be as connected, quote unquote, um, as I would be if I hadn't uh, started off with such a strong start on people just taking a chance on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but people started to take a chance on me when they thought I was a straight white person. So, um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So I would say that I'm not sure if it comes from I. Oh. It's chicken or the egg for me because I came out just when I started to get really involved with um, show production, and I did a couple mm-hmm. of shows for Cobalt Press. Um, and I was working with Dot at the time, and Dot really liked what I was doing, so mm-hmm. they uh, she brought me on, and then. Um, for my um, Empire of the Ghouls campaign uh, production that I did for Cobalt Press, uh, showcasing their like primary like 5e campaign, um, I brought in a diverse cast, so it wasn't really like an issue. Like mm-hmm. I had a diverse casting that I just reached out to people and I was like, "Hey, I would like to really, I would really like to work with you." And then I just worked through that. I think a lot of um, and kind of segue like adjacent to our conversation. And I was just talking about this with my, I'm going to reference my girlfriend because I was just having this conversation with her. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand how people can't diversify like their, if you run like a show or something and like you can't have guests on and you can't diversify in that way. I just like, like, I, I remember I got asked once to be on like a podcast and I checked their podcast and of course, and they have 80 episodes and there was two fucking people who weren't straight and white. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, Whoa. and they said in the, and was they it said an in the show. It was. And they Whoa. said, exactly. Like, it's like, that's a layup. Like, that's like right here. Like, that's there's super so easy. many, multiple of the biggest people in like TTRPGs are not straight or white. How do you miss them? <laughs> that's wild. And they reached out to me and they said in the initial message, like, maybe you could say this like as the quiet part, but like, 
you don't say in your initial message like, "Hey, we're looking to diversify," so I'm sending you this message like, yeah. "Oh, so you're tokenizing me right up front? Thanks, cool. I will not follow through with this." At all. <laughs> Yeah, let me know. (laughs) I see. And I'm imagining a scenario where if somebody said, look, we realized we messed up and we actually are actively trying to change and we would like for you to be the first part of that change. Can you please come on our show? If you're upfront about it like that and you just lay it out, uh, I that doesn't bother me. I think that's actually respectful and I commend them for trying to make the change. But yeah, in your case, it's like wh- they didn't even acknowledge it and yet you can see the trend and you're like, interesting. So why do you want me on your show? <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, it's ugh. I I completely agree. I think um it is I, that's really first of all, I really want to address the fact that you said that when people saw you as a straight white man, they were more likely to have you on because I think that's also very interesting in and of itself. Because what I've experienced is like, oh, he's black. My thought process has always been he's black, but he's not like too black. He's not threateningly black. Oh. He doesn't make me feel uncomfortable yeah. as a white person. So he's like a safe black person that I can have on, which is a whole other conversation. Oh, uh, we like, can talk um, about it. My my girlfriend's mixed. Like, do okay, you want to talk yeah. about that? Are you okay talking about this, my girl? Yeah, she gets sure. the same shit. She gets the same shit because she's uh she's black and indigenous. So she gets exoticized by both black people uh, and then other white people who are like, okay, well you're not uh quote unquote scary black. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that's yeah, how yeah. she's treated. So um, I mentioned, yeah, the, I mean, the church that I grew up in was like pr- mostly white, uh, very overwhelmingly white. And, uh, my, d- this is a wild one. So my dad, uh, he, he won't know that I'm saying this, uh, had been going to that church since he was 15. Uh, and, he, and so he'd been going there for decades. Uh, the mid seventies, he started going there. And in the eighties, he was dating a woman at that church who was white and they had a great relationship and were actually looking to get married. And they went to the church elders and were like, Hey, can we get married? And the church elders, uh, thought about it and said no because they didn't want to offend the congregation by having a mixed marriage. And so that was the church that I grew up in. Uh, Now, obviously, the leadership who had made that decision were not in charge really by the time that I was coming of age, but that is where they were coming from, and there had not been massive, massive overhauls. So even though mixed-race couples were no longer as big of an issue, it was that's the milieu that this descended from. So I grew up very much like uh being seen as black but not too black i mean even with my accent uh a lot of people if they just hear me talk won't necessarily immediately judge me as black unless they're told um I definitely have difficulties, uh, as much as I said I have difficulties fitting in with masculine spaces, I often also have difficulties fitting in with black spaces, culturally speaking, because the cultural background I came from was overwhelmingly white. My dad is black, and his extended family is black, but his extended family didn't live in Cincinnati, where I grew up. I barely saw them. My mother is black, uh, but she grew up in Britain in sort of a Jamaican environment, and she would introduce a couple elements of that, but I didn't really have like a really strong identification with contemporary black culture i had a strong identification with black history especially american black history because my dad went out of his way to teach me and show me movies and uh he has a he has a wild book that i've never seen anybody else own but he had it as like a history piece that they had published that was uh postcards of lynchings 
that they used to make. And it was like photos of various lynchings. And he had oh this book God. and he would show it to me like, uh, I think when I was like in middle school and high school, uh, not that we'd sit there and be like flipping through, but he would show me to, just to see like, this is where we've come from. And so I had a clear idea, a pretty clear idea, I think probably clearer than a lot of people of America's racial history, but I just didn't have the present. And I, uh, when it relates to three black halflings, this is another aspect that I rarely identify, but I think it also helped that we were not threateningly black, that we didn't all have the only person who really had an accent that could be easily identified as black was Unati in the original trio. And even they, they sound, I think to anyone who isn't like really familiar with South African accents, they, you're not really clear on where their accent is from. And they're again, not like, they're not like angry or threatening about in, in their blackness, quote unquote, even though Unati actually does have very strong opinions on racial issues but i think it they managed to translate it in such a way that it still didn't feel threatening to people people just found it uh funny uh not even just funny but like inspiring uh but it was like funny and inspiring and, and not like ha, 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 pointing and laughing more like um how white progressive people can sometimes be like yes please punish me uh and you know strapping on the ideological ball gag uh and it, so when unati would like make jokes about white people there was definitely a vibe of him like yes harder uh yeah. in some cases yeah. But I, it is an interesting thing because I do think that with part of the appeal for a lot of white people of Three Black Halflings is the fact that it's not like, quote unquote, threateningly black. And then me as somebody who is not uh, threateningly black, I think that has helped with my career. Um, in, in I, but what's interesting is even given that when we talk about the most well-known GMs, all of them but one are, I believe, straight white male i know they're white male but i think all of them but one are straight white male um when you talk about your brian murphy's or your brendan lee mulligan's or your matthew mercer's or your any of the mcelroy's i i'm not aware of any of the mcelroy's having come out uh as anything other than straight white uh and men and cis men but uh they do the, dye their hair that's true they do they do uh -oh. so who knows uh and <laughs> matthew knows? mercer sometimes wears nail polish or he'll wear he'll paint his nails so who knows uh, maybe they just haven't uh, advertised it. But th yeah, other than like a Bria. Um, and then obviously like B. Dave Walters, although he he exists like as an entity unto himself. Uh, I feel separate really from does. like that ecosystem. Yeah, he he's his own does, brand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like the top of the food. It's really interesting that you mentioned that because really the top of the food chain does seem to consistently be straight white men. So it makes sense to me that people might have responded that way. But I, I, I am kind of surprised. And maybe it's because you haven't auditioned for stuff, as you said, or you haven't really gone for something. But I'm surprised that you haven't had somebody be like, we're trying to diversify, like explicitly, we want to have like an all trans show or a majority, like all people who aren't straight type show, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think part of that is also that I have been only really interested in so here's the rub i have since i did empire of the ghouls and since mm -hmm. i went like paid um contracted like you know cobalt press paid us to do that show since i went paid for shows much more mm -hmm. difficult to get into shows now because now i only really want to do paid because yeah. now i have a full-time job in ttrpg and if you're gonna say that hey you want my expertise like producing a show or you want me to be involved in some way like it, there needs to be either a really strong incentive for me to do it for free it needs to be paid mm -hmm. so that really it cuts out like i think 95 to 98 percent of the shows yep. in the industry so i have sent probably about um in 2022 um 
just as I was like wrapping Empire of the Ghouls, I probably sent out audition forms for 10 to 30, so maybe mm. 20 average, 20 shows, which I mm-hmm. think is not enough in order to get cast. I could get cast on any show that was maybe smaller than Cobalt Press. I wasn't looking for that. I was looking right. for something that was a little bit bigger, a little more established. Upward mobility. Yeah, I was looking for upward mobility. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it. There's no reason for me to. I was only going to do projects that I was really interested in doing. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm kind of like putting together my own show. Um, I guess we haven't announced, but we're also not under NDA. But mm-hmm. I do have tentatively have a show uh, for later this year. I'm working oh, nice. out with a production company to kickstart it. It's... I think it'll be like the goal be like low. I just want to make sure that the performers get paid somewhere in the range of like two to 300 per session. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's why I want the kickstarted so that we can do that and then make sure that they get paid, make sure your production gets paid um, and then present like a nice audio drama style show. Um, yeah. And I, I don't necessarily want to announce that because I haven't, uh, or who's on the show because, um, I haven't contracted those people. They've just kind of tentatively agreed. Super excited mm-hmm. to work with them, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I just haven't, for me, it's like in the position that I'm in, I'm in kind of a, like a weird position as well because for me, for instance, like the la- when I went to Gen Con, right? The mm-hmm. only reason I was able to justify going to Gen Con was A, because I was a panelist, uh, for freelancers. I was on the panel with, um, uh, Chelsea Dot from, uh, uh, Cobalt Press, um, mm-hmm. Brute Ladan, Roll20, Community Manager, Diana D'Amico, and then B. Dave Walters. And, uh, for freelancing. And I was like, my side of it was like professional GMing and they were mostly production or like marketing in some other way. And mm-hmm. Cobalt Press, uh, hooked it up and like with their, uh, professional GM program and they paid for the room and board for the people running games for them. So I ran like three or four games and then I was also, on their panel and that was the compensation trade because me the cost opportunity of me going to a convention now is two to four thousand dollars because i'm not gonna earn money that week because i'm a freelancer right so i have Mm -hmm. to run games to make money games are most of my money is on the weekends so when i'm running games on the weekends i make um i think between right now i'm at 1500 to 2000 a week right now for my income, depending on it slides, um, mm-hmm. depending on things going on. But, um, yeah, the cost opportunity is too great because then I also have to go there. I have to fly there. I have to fly myself there. And then I have to potentially pay for room and board, which that time Cobalt yep. Press paid for, which was wonderfully kind of them. And I was very happy to do the work with them. I love working with Cobalt Press. Um, and I would work with them again in a heartbeat, but, um, yeah, it was just not, there's just not enough reason for me to go because the return isn't there for me as a professional in the same way that a show really has to be something that I'm excited about because I, it's a good problem to have, to be honest with you. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but Mm -hmm. all of my money right now for professional GMing cycles right back into the vineyard and I pay people with it. So my writers and my artists and everything else, and a lot of the things that I'm able to do book is really enabled by professional GMing and the business I've built Mm -hmm. up. So it's difficult for me to transition from that to something else without some sort of greater justification. And I would like very much to work with, um, you know, the next level when I get there, um, but I don't want to take an opportunity that I'm not ready for at the same time, because I've talked with some of my mentors about that. And it's like, that can also be a career killer. Have you seen that or experienced that um, in some way or like one of your friends? I don't think that your career was killed, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, especially in acting, you will see examples of that where uh, I remember an example that we were told in drama school once in first year. Uh, there was a British actress, cannot remember her name 
who starred in, she managed to land the lead role in a big, big musical. And for anyone who is not aware, musicals may, it costs like tens and tens of millions or more in many cases, often over a hundred million dollars to make a musical, uh, to see the whole thing through, pay everybody, go through all of the development. And musicals have to run often for a while to even turn a profit. Um, the, it's, it's a big business musicals. And she was primarily, uh, a quote unquote straight play actress. She did not really do musicals, but she landed the lead role in this. And this was a big, big musical. And then shortly into the run, uh, she, her, her voice gave out and she just couldn't do it. Um, in part because she hadn't had the, those years of building up the vocal stamina to be able to sing like that night after night after night after night after night. And as in response, the, the producer of that musical was so angry that he had lost his big star that it was one of the big draws for the musical that he basically blacklisted her and said, she's never going to work in one of my productions again. And some of his, I imagine some of his friends may have also been like, well, I guess she's not working in ours either. And she ended up, I, he, what my teacher said is these days she does butter commercials, which, hey, you can definitely make a living doing butter commercials, but it ain't the same thing as being on the West End. Uh, yeah. if, if, if that's where you used to be, odds are you probably didn't want to have to be the person doing the butter commercials. Uh, And so it absolutely is possible. I think with TTRPGs, it's probably less likely. The, the issue would be is if you were, is if you just beefed it, like you went on a show and just did so bad that people are like, Oh, I've heard it all the, I've heard it years. I know they say it on NADPOD a lot, but I think I've heard it before that. You just fail, utterly fail. I don't know what it means though, other than that you failed, that you just, you completely screwed up. <laughs> I don't know where the root though. I'm going to look this up. Well, <laughs> the etymology of the phrase beefed it, uh, as I'm talking. Uh, beefed it. Okay. okay. Uh, well, uh, the, oh wait, okay, so this is what it is. Apparently it goes back, oh no, that's why an argument is called having beef, never mind. Okay. I'll keep looking. <laughs> but anyway, the, um, the, if you were to like, say you landed a, a spot on like Critical Role and you went on there for like multiple episodes and it was just trash. <laughs> like it was so bad that you were actively ruining the dynamic at the table. Uh, like a, it's like a return to the most tense parts of the Tiberius days where oh. they're all visibly oh. uncomfortable at the table and you're yeah. there like just, ah, and the fandom is in uproar. Like that I could see killing a career, but. Yeah. I think, uh, thankfully most shows don't have that much reach so that if you did beef it on a show, maybe that group was like, well, I didn't like her. I didn't like her here, but you know, maybe she shows up on like, maybe years down the line, you show up on like NADPOD or something and they're like, whoa, Friday's amazing. Uh, when you yeah. go on there. And so, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from there. Uh, it is, I, I imagine possible, but I think it's less. Thankfully, less likely. It's a weird thing because, like, as much as we say TTRPG industry, the performance part of the industry is still so young and underdeveloped that it's, I don't know if there's anyone who, other than maybe, like, Brendan Lee Mulligan or, if they wanted to, the people with Critical Role, who can, like, make a living just being in TTRPG performances. Um, like, I... 
I don't know if yeah. that's feasible. There's just aren't enough. Like even the job you're talking about paying people 300 bucks that yeah. I don't know if people realize that that's like, that's more than top 5%. That's like a top 1% of oh, yeah. TTRPG job sort of deal. That's like yeah. you have become a one percenter in TTRPGs when you are getting yeah. paid that much, uh, for, for a gig. Yeah. That's, um, and that's, and that's partly because, and why I aim for that. And for the same reason that pay the rates that I do is a, because I can make it work and I will make it work. Um, for my for my book for my vineyard team, but um, also people deserve to be paid compensated fairly. And my my stance on it is is that if I need someone that is a full time creator, whether they be an actor, a voice actor, a writer, an artist, and I mm. need that five to fifteen years of experience of them being a professional in order to come up to the level that I want them to, then I better be pre- paying them for their experience. You know what I mean? And I better meet them where they're at. And that's kind of my mentality with it, which I think a lot of people, they kind of miss that, that sort of the cognitive dissonance between some people and paying people proper rates, sometimes infuriating because people want this wonderfully great product and they want top level performance, whatever they may need, but they don't want to pay for it. I'm just like, how do you think, how do you, do you think that your idea or your show or your product is so enticing by itself that they're going to pay, they're going to, they're going to accept poverty wages? Like, yeah, you need to, you need to meet them in the middle. And then when you treat them respectfully and when you, when you actively try to treat them, you know, and by respectfully, I mean, just like you respect their time, you respect, mm-hmm. you know, their, their time in a lot of different ways. Like you, yeah. um, you're showing up to actually collaborate with them and like meet them in the middle and respect what they say, like when you're in meetings and stuff like that. And, uh, and then of course pay for their time appropriately because if you don't pay them appropriately, if you don't pay them enough, what's the natural consequence of that? They need to go find money elsewhere. That means that they have less on their, they have more on their schedule. They have less free time. They have to take multiple jobs. They can't care about your job. So if you're going to expect full dedication and like the energy to like bring down the house you need to pay full-time pay i i really really wish that three black halflings made enough money to pay people more than we do it's not like we pay people pittance but compared to the value and compared to like i would love to be paying people a thousand an episode you know what i mean i would uh, like it would make me so happy like especially for the i think another thing that is is worth considering is the value that their performance is bringing to your product as as good as as much as the GM is the single most important person in a campaign, a great GM and a terrible party is going to be a bad show. Um, you and in fact, an amazing cast can elevate even a mediocre DM to still have a good show. Uh, I the DM like does not necessarily speak as much as the entire cast does. People don't, people go there and they want to engage with the characters, the storyline that like, that's, you need people to come in and give you, just, uh, fire both barrels, giving it all they got, uh, and, th- and absolutely laying down some incredible performances. And that brings so much value to your product in the end, your end product, uh, that I'm like, I would prefer to overvalue it. That's I like, I, if I had the money, uh, we would be paying people even for like, we, most of our shows are like our, our bigger productions are 16 to 20 episodes, right? I would, it would make me so happy to be like, Hey, we're going to block off a few weekends or weeks 
and pay you twenty thousand dollars for like or twenty thousand pounds even for your time. That would and like because I think honestly, with the amount of with the quality of performance. I would say a lot of these, the, some of the people that we've worked with, I would absolutely pay that much. Um, I, yeah, I'm in, in, in the process of trying to start kind of my own thing and move. I'm still uh, very much a part of Three Black Halflings, but just to, to distinguish myself, I'm, uh, trying to launch some more projects, uh, including hopefully stuff that would involve me paying people. Uh, yeah. and I would love to be able to, I've actually spoken to, uh, I've spoken to a friend of mine, uh, who has experience with this kind of thing. And they had advised like crowdfunding as a way of doing it and say, but the, like the amount that they were saying that I would pay people is like, man, I hadn't even considered that I would be able to pay someone that much. It's not like, I don't want to pay them that much. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't even know, but it's, it's true. Yeah. With that, like I, it, Really, when you uh, once you start to get to the top levels, I think it is a matter of respect uh, for people's time and effort and the value that they're bringing to you uh, to pay them a wage that would allow them to actually like live off of it for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Even if even if a month or two, still like I would yeah. love to be able to provide that for people. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that's what I'm kind of looking towards. Uh, we're still kind of in like the figuring out all of the detail stages for the stuff that I'm working on, but, uh, that is absolutely consideration. It's like paying people, uh, the, what they are worth. Uh, yeah. absolutely. And all that to say, and just to sort of focus this and, uh, sort of provide some framework for the people listening that may be like looking to start their own productions absolutely you don't have a budget or much of one if you do yeah. right because yeah. that's what happens when you're starting that's what you're doing um i when i first started and i was like i can pay people 15 dollars, and yep. that's what i did so that's what i did i paid them 15 dollars to show up and like give it a good go and then if i did as much as possible from my end like as a producer as a project manager and like bringing people to the show and enjoying it, I did as much work as I could to meet them in the middle so that I wasn't paying them $15, but then treating them like shit. I was mm -hmm. paying them $15 and then really valuing their time and trying to, as much as possible, provide some sort of perk or something like that where I could say that, like, hey, you're still getting something out of this. And I remember for, like, the one shot that I did for, like, Shore of Dreams... And I had these four people coming in for this one shot. Um, I paid for their character art and then I gave them the rights to that. Oh, in addition yeah. to like paying them, um, I think it was, I can't remember how much it was under a hundred bucks, but it was like, you know, you come and play a couple of times and then I'm going to pay you like a hundred bucks or something around that range. Um, and I gave them the rights to their art. And one of those people uses, um, that character art in their for their business now you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like part of what they uh provide in their like presence and like their website and everything and like things that they've because they own it it's theirs i don't i don't own it um but like there's different things you can do especially as a producer like when you're first starting out to try and either incentivize um or sort of pay them in some way or compensate them i should say in some way that is considered fair or they would be interested in when you are starting out, you cannot have your expectations like I'm going to be NADPOD coming out of the gate. You need mm -hmm. to be doing all of the NADPOD production work then because yeah. <laughs> nobody else is coming to the table with that NADPOD performance when you <laughs> are not paying NADPOD levels or what. I don't know what they make, but like it's a lot, but it's a lot. It, yeah, it's a lot. Their but, Patreon is huge. Right. And I'm sure most of that goes to the production, honestly. But yeah, for... 
starting out and like managing and stuff and just being a leader and like just being mm -hmm. open with your rates, being fair, talking to people. Honestly, and this is something, a point of contention that I'm not like one of the things that I really hate about NDAs is like can't discuss rates. I publish my rates every project I do. Like everybody mm -hmm. gets paid this. Everybody mm -hmm. like this is what is is the compensation for it because I believe that really hiding salaries or compensation um, from other people on your team that are contributing to the same project yep. only benefits me, yep. only benefits the corporation running it. Yeah, because that means that I can haggle people down. That means yep. that I pay this person less than this person for reasons that I have determined when really I should be looking for people when I'm casting or I'm finding people for a team that are all going to rise to the level of pay that I'm providing and are otherwise interested in um, my production or whatever I'm producing instead yes. of looking for a Bruce Willis that I'm going to pay $2 million for to stand there and grimace. And uh -huh. then everybody else gets pennies because we paid for Bruce Willis to sell tickets. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I completely agree. It, and it also prevents there from being like an industry standard. Because if no one is able to disclose how much they're getting paid, then no one knows how much they should expect uh, at a, for a, a production of that level. So I would say, like, for the majority of shows that I've guested on, I have not been paid uh, because they're very, very small productions. And we're just like, hey, would you like to come do this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um it's kind of where we're, I think where Three Black Halflings has been coming from, where we're all coming from, is very much like we, we, we didn't have expectations. We were talking about establishing a brand as like a pro GM and then moving forward with that. And there are a few major things that I think are very important to consider. Like when you're first starting as a pro GM, you need to consider who are you? What are you most comfortable presenting as and that doesn't necessarily have to mean that like your sexual or gender identity that just means like what do you want your brand to seem like what do you want your games to seem like what vibes do you want to put out there that's mm -hmm. very important to just like make a decision on that and most gms already know what it is if you don't and you can very easily find out when you ask your players for feedback and I generally say, like, if you don't know what that is, you it could be one of two things. Like, you could just, like, have imposter syndrome and just be very uncertain or um, you have something going on uh, personally where you just are very unsure um, about that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then secondly, you just haven't been given feedback before. And you just haven't established like a vision or a self image of yourself, which I understand very intimately as a trans person. So I would say you need to do like stars and wishes with your players who have played with you before to kind of figure out like, what are my strengths and weaknesses? You just need to establish a form of self. You need to understand what is it that I really bring to the table that's unique. And B. Dave Walter says this all the time. Um, what are you bringing to the table that is entirely you? Like, you can't mm -hmm. do what B. Dave Walters does, but B. Dave Walters can't do what you do. So you need right. to figure out, like, what is it that makes your game special? And that's important to know. You can have, like, yeah. mentors or people that you look up to or people you want to emulate. But at the same time, just pick three people. Pick two or three people and figure out which parts of their game or, like, their presentation or their style that you're really identifying with. 
And then from mm-hmm. there, you sort of develop in that direction and you double down on your strengths. From there, yeah. as a business, you generally want to hire out for your weaknesses. That means if you're not very good at describing things, you might want to go to describe.com and use coupon code Friday in order to save 10% on your subscription. But <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I, I'm a describe ambassador. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, <laughs> amazing. I've never heard of described. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> this is great. D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com. So they have box text, narrative text. They have uh, a Sonic library now. They've partnered with uh, Gelfi, who does like a ton of different ambiences um, and musical scores, and they're super fantastic. Um, and then you can also look up everything from like magic items to spell descriptions to dialogue to anything that you need as a GM to help you prepare. And it is a great tool in order to help you prepare for your games. Um, and that's all you need to be a professional GM. I'm just kidding. You got you need a <laughs> you need a lot more, but you need to look and figure out like what is it that's going to help bring your game to the next level for a professional, and then you utilize those tools. Like if you're not good at visually describing things uh, for whatever reason, then use a virtual tabletop. And like mm-hmm. if you're more of a person that enjoys creating maps and stuff, like that's something that you're bringing to the table that's going to be better than in other circumstances. I personally use a mixture of like theater of the mind and like battle maps um but mm-hmm. most of the time my players are just on the theater of the mind and mm-hmm. um i put a theater of the mind map up and I, you know we're talking about that um or we're talking through it so sense of self that's the number one pillar and there's three pillars total right then you have to worry about what is the game that i'm running because you can be running more than one game so your answer for this is going to change right so if you're running say a curse of strad campaign is going to be very different than uh call of the nether deep campaign those two things are like diametrically opposed in some ways um there's still some horror in nether deep um but yeah and there's still some humor in strad but you're going to find more of those elements and how it mixes is going to be different it with your mm-hmm. style so define what the game is and what is unique and special about the game. You can't bring something to the table that's vanilla as a professional DM and then expect it to do well. And that's the honest truth mm-hmm. nowadays. I think two years ago when Star Playing Games was a little bit less involved and like less busy, people could just post games and like they would fill up. And it would just be mm-hmm. like some shitty thumbnail, a bad title, no advertisement, like, hey, come play D&D with us. And that would be it. But now, since the advertising bar has been raised, players are now, like, sifting through these advertisements and they're seeing, like, which game is right for me specifically? What experience am Mm -hmm. I looking for? So you need to define what that game experience is in four to six set uh, words, as I struggle with my words. You need to Mm -hmm. fit four to six words for a title max. And then from there, if you want to break it up and have like a, a, a line break or whatever, and then provide another element like gothic horror game or, you know, mystery, whatever, then you can do that or provide like the level range. And that's okay to have that as like a subtitle. But for the most part, you need to be capturing people between both your thumbnail that you have decided completely aligns with both your brand that you've decided on and then your game you've decided on. And when people are scrolling on like a marketplace like start playing games it's similar to an amazon or a youtube in which you have one or two seconds to capture someone's attention how are you going to get someone's attention to get them to stop and consider clicking on your advertisement if you cannot get them to stop while they're scrolling then you will never gain that business so if you have a thumbnail that is too busy or uh just monochromatic 
or you just have something that is just not very evocative. If you have writing in your thumbnail instead of just the title, then that is hard to read because normally the writing is going to be really small for the thumbnail or people are browsing on their phones. If you have an image file that's too big that doesn't load fast enough, people will scroll right by it. So Mm -hmm. you are aligned with like four to five, sometimes eight to ten different advertisements at the same time and you need to stand out in some way. And in one or two seconds, someone needs to look at that and be like, this is a game that completely defines like what I'm looking for. So I'll give you an example. For me, when I started running games uh, on Start Playing Games, one of the things that I did that was unique, quote unquote, on that platform at the time was I was running She is the Ancient, which is a gender-swapped version of Curse of Strahd. And the Mm -hmm. cover image I used, which was for the thumbnail was from the She is the Ancient cover, and that was um, the Countess Strahd, done by Yorsi Hernandez, mm-hmm. who's an artist now on my team for the Vineyard. Uh, wonderful, nice. wonderful artist. Um, but you could clearly see the Countess Strahd with her red glowing eyes, and it was such a captivating image that it really drew people into it, and it committed mm-hmm. them to learning more. Because that is generally what you want. You want something to be easily recognizable, yet slightly different to where it excites someone. So nowadays, like if you see something, and this is the example I use often, is like, what about you're scrolling and then you see Strahd in space? Doesn't that seem like interesting and funny? It's like, okay, well, I've heard of Curse of Strahd because of that marketing Mm -hmm. dragon that's in the room. Like they've already been exposed to five to eight impressions, which is the average for someone to make a sale on any product ever. Like Coke as a brand is only worried about like putting impressions out there. Like they want to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. So eventually you buy a Coke or you try it, right? It's the same way with advertisements. So like D&D, they want you to see Dungeons and Dragons five to eight times so that eventually you buy a D&D book. And then when they buy a D&D book, they have been told by all the other players when they're new, I've had this Curse of Strahd experience or I've heard this campaign is really good. So all these people coming mm-hmm. in have already heard a dozen times, Lost Mine of Fandelver is a good campaign. Curse of Strahd is a good campaign. They've already heard that. They've already had their mm-hmm. curiosity sort of like tweaked. If you are not running a very mainstream main brand game, it becomes that much more difficult. So if you're trying to run Thirsty Sword Lesbians or some of these other great games like Vampire the Masquerade, mm-hmm. like the na- the brand recognition is just lower. Um, and you need to really fine tune your thumbnail and your title to evoke curiosity and action. And from there, you have a good shot of booking people to play in your game. And the last thing that I'll say is the pillar for understanding about like your brand as a professional GM is what type of player are you trying to attract? You need to understand Mm. their profile. Their profile, quote unquote, being like what type of player would play in your game and have a great time. You're not trying to attract anyone. You're trying to attract someone that would love your game because that way they have fun. You have fun playing with them. They bring energy to the table. They love playing with you. They love playing with the other players around you. And they're a good part of your business. And you like coming to work because you don't want to attract people. Maybe you think like all the players are this way or that way. Um, You don't want that because I'll give you an example then for like me. I didn't realize just by like putting myself out there as like being an openly trans person and an openly queer person that I was going to attract a lot of queers. Over half Mm -hmm. of my tables are queers. 
for every single one of my tables. I have one straight table, or I did. They're no longer straight. I had a queer join that table. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so it was like, it, and that was kind of like what happened naturally over time was that like, because people saw who I was, they felt safe to join it. And in a lot of ways, if you're advertising and maybe you're a cis straight white person, you still have pieces of yourself and your identity that you can leverage to be able to figure out what your brand is and what type of player right. that you want. And that can be anything from like just the type of media that you like to the type of experience that you want to create. And that's just an example of creating that like holistic business brand experience. Like I have a very mm -hmm. sex positive um, environment that I create. And that kind of mm -hmm. happened naturally because over the summer I was single again and I was starting to date and I was on dating apps. So I was like during our pregame chatter time, um, I was just talking about like me being on dating apps and like some of the weird shit that happens naturally, especially as like a trans person <laughs> um, mm. and people like reaching out to you and being like, hey, so I've never seen a trans woman naked except in porn. And I'm just like, whoa, OK. Uh, <laughs> I, uh... Uh, you're talking about how your girlfriend is fetishized and it's like, yeah, and how that parallels. And I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. I've been there as a black man, certainly. Uh, yeah. I've gotten some very personal questions from just people very casually. Uh, yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. Wild that you're asking me this. Yeah. I, um, um, please continue. I did not mean to do really <laughs> No, no, that's there. fine. You're, you're one half of this podcast. All right. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I had an idea as you were describing. I, since I'm still in the early stages, cause it's not for me, uh, uh, professional GMing is something that I'm trying to use in part to establish a brand separate from Three Black Halflings, but also to have a steady income stream in the industry so that I... And also, like, I mean, GMing that much just makes you a better GM because you are able to uh, hopefully get to play more systems, but certainly get more reps and just work things out and play with a wider variety of people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I imagine it builds a lot of skills. And as since I'm somebody who's new into it, uh, maybe it might be helpful for not only me, but also the listeners to hear like the process of somebody trying to transition into something like this. So would it be possible if for us to go through the pillars and me to throw out ways in which I've attempted to answer that early on and you can give me feedback and ex point out where I may be going right or wrong so that people could like hear essentially like, oh, here's an example. Yeah, um, I do that all the time in my ad copy workshops and I would love to do that on this podcast. So do you have your GM profile link? Uh, well, as of right now, it's the, the closest thing that I have is from D and D in a castle. The first time that I ever had to, uh, the first time that I ever had to describe my GMing style at all was, uh, when I had first done D and D in a castle and I'd never thought of like what my GMing style was. I always kind of thought of myself as like an all round sort of person. And so I asked one of my players and she kind of said the same thing. It's like, it's a little bit of everything kind of. And so I've only recently after have being pay, uh, paying a little more, more attention to it and giving it more thought and asking more people, have I then dropped this? So game style would be the thing that I actually kind of that I actually wrote. 
Hello, halflings! My name is Jeremy Cobb, but you can call me your DM for D&D in a Castle. Get ready to jump into a vibrant and exciting world unlike any you've played in before. Whether we're setting out into the vast plains of the post-apocalyptic North Africa-inspired Weird West world of Utarum, the urban canyons of the gothic steampunk noir city of Mavros, or the swamps, jungles, and mountains of the dragon-filled high-fantasy world of Udraco, I love to craft unique settings for my games. I make it a point to integrate player backstory into the plot, allowing for even more emotional investment. You can expect a healthy mix of engaging RP and challenging combats, with a tone ranging from Looney Tunes to Lord of the Rings, with everything in between. I also prioritize safety at the table, so I talk to each of my players ahead of time and use lines and fails to ensure that we don't include anything everyone isn't comfortable with, allowing us to all relax and have the most fun possible. I also love to include music, so you can expect an immersive and thrilling soundtrack to all our adventures. I can't wait to see you at my table. Okay, so um, understanding that that has to be a paragraph and can't be formatted into like a list of some kind, a lot of that stuff would actually go under your GM style and you can like Mm -hmm. bullet point it and like sort of make it more concise because a lot of the time what you're fighting or trying to prevent is someone from like looking away or seeing a wall of text. Yeah. Because you want to, as much as possible, draw people in and then convince them to read more. So that is why I generally use like a quote at the top or something like that that sort of sparks the curiosity for them to read more or something like that. And I provide as much information in a bulletized format up top. You'll see a lot of people mm-hmm. on the platform do that now. Um, I'm not going to say it was because of me, but it just so happens that people started doing it after I started doing a copy workshop for this reason. But um, yeah, and I would say remove, I would move all the stuff where like you have like your, <coughs> sorry, go ahead. No, you, you're good. Um, you have all of your credits for like your shows and things like that, that you've done. I would put that at the bottom because mm-hmm. any proper noun that is not easily recognizable as a name brand is going to actually hinder, <coughs> is actually going to hinder your ability to like connect with that person. So for you in D&D in a Castle, that's going to differ greatly than your start playing games profile. Because people that are signing up for D&D in a Castle, I would say, probably know who you are because uh, they are interested in this experience with um, these sort of uh, influencer DMs and things like that. So that's not bad for their site. However, for start playing games, I would say that it doesn't really do you any favors. Um, they either mm-hmm. know who you are already or they don't. Um, they recognize you or they don't because either they've probably seen you if they've seen your show, right? Or they've heard you mm-hmm. and they would recognize your name or something like that. So I don't think it helps you. So I would just move those proper nouns to the bottom. Stuff like Looney Tunes and mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, keep that. But like your shows, I would put it at the bottom. Everything else was actually really good, I think, for mm-hmm. that. I think it's a great short summary. And you're really hitting on the major things like what is a reason someone's going to pay money to play at your table? And for a lot of these pro GM tables, what people are looking for can vary widely. Some people really want, uh, and they get advertised to specifically, about... Um, 90% combat, crunch, and stuff like that. And they will gravitate towards those GMs who advertise that way. Like if you cut, if you show on your advertisement that, hey, I'm going to be really crunchy and like I let you do all of this homebrew stuff and I have a list of sources that you can use. If you focus on that, that's who you attract. You attract the number crunching players who are l- specifically looking for that. And with you mm-hmm. gaining more, uh, or orienting yourself more towards like a an enabling 
um, GM style, which a lot of people say that they are, but are they actually? I don't know. Um, I know you are for, you know, like, I know you are. <laughs> right, because you've heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I've, you know, experienced your GMing. But, um, yeah, I think it is, uh, for the most part, difficult to quantify your style until you right. get that feedback. Yeah. Yeah, it like uh, it literally took me over a year to figure this out. Like I think I, I think I edited it like last December, where I finally was like, ah, yes, I can describe it now because I'd gotten enough feedback from enough people and seen like, especially uh, not even intentionally asking. In some cases, it would be at the table. I would be playing and I'd be jamming, and people would be like, whoa, I can't wait until this source comes out as a source book. And so that was when. I started to realize, like, oh, the world building is a selling point. The fact that this is unlike anybody, unlike what most people would have played before, is something that I should highlight. So I may not, as you were saying, you would normally do, like, a bullet point on uh, Start Playing Games. Maybe I would, yeah, uh, condense that into, like, unique and exciting world building or something as, like, one thing, along with, like, uh, you know, um, flexible tone. Uh, flexible and wide-ranging tone from Looney Tunes to Lord of yeah. the Rings and everything between sort of something like that. I would... Uh, or how th- mixing lots of RP, lots of cha- challenging combats, etc. Yeah, I have I have some thoughts about this. And this may or may not, like... And I think it's difficult for you in the fact that, like, as you start out... L- let's just call, call it what it is. Your games are going to fill. Don't worry about that. Mm. All right? However, your copywriting may not improve because they're always going to fill. And you'll find that sometimes, like, if something isn't working for a week, you change it, you alter it, you refine it over time to figure out, is this the exact thing I'm trying to say? And, like, sometimes the copywriting, the thumbnail, and the title makes a huge difference about whether or not people book you or not. And you'll see that overnight as you change it. Um, 50% of the people join within a day of the game starting. And then the other 50% of the people join between day two and day seven, a week out, right? Um, as they're looking at their schedules and stuff. Most people operate on schedules in our world. So I think that one thing you want to avoid, though, is seeming like you're not setting to a theme or a tone. And that's why it's important (coughs) to sort of specify what game that you're running. So if you don't have the world defined completely in your building over time, that can be uh, that can be a bad thing in your advertisement because you're not being specific. If you are not niching down on exactly the experience that you're selling, essentially the the um, the experience, then it can be like difficult. the tone of the world. Yeah, it can be difficult. Basically, Western versus noir. Like if you if you have that as a clear identifier, then people can clearly say, "Oh, I love westerns." Yeah. Or when they think of westerns, it's like, "Oh, adventure, cowboys." Yeah. Uh, shootouts. Yeah. Okay, I may not watch westerns, but that sounds like something I might try. Or noir. Yeah. Okay, intrigue, detective, shadows, conspiracies, organized crime, urban. Like that's yeah. yeah. It it calls to thing mind things. So even if you don't have tons of experience with the genre, you may then be like, ah, okay, this it helps people yeah. to sort themselves. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, exactly. And what you need to do mostly with your thumbnail is convey tone and theme sort of introduce someone to be curious enough so i was actually just working with someone that was like hey i'm trying to sell this noir game or i'm trying to book this noir game and i was like that thumbnail better look like a fucking sin city poster like you need to represent exactly the style of media that would bring in that type of player that likes that kind of story so um 
you know, just go reference Frank Miller posters or whatever or art, mm-hmm. and then you bring it back to um, what you can do with your thumbnail as far as theme and tone. And then when you're talking about your full description, when people are already curious and they're making the decision on whether or not to hit that blue button to join campaign, um, you need to specify, most importantly, what is the player experience? And you need to put that clear as day at the top. Like, are you going to be excited? Are you going to be frightened? Are you going to be sweating? Are you going to, like, laugh a lot? Those are the things where it sounds, like, weird. Like, you're telling someone that they're going to be fucking laughing. You need to confidently tell people, Jeremy Cott, I'm I'm telling you right now that they're going to fucking laugh. Because you make people laugh. So (laughs) you need to put that in your advertisement. Um, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily as the mainstay, but, like, I think that's inseparable from the way that you DM in some ways, right? Because you can you can make people laugh and it's important to really convey that in a way. I think I do it sort of subtly in my ad copy in which I like make a joke um, about my Mm -hmm. straw copy and there's like a little bulletized joke in there. So there is humor Mm -hmm. and there is horror, but like it's very important to like convey like who are you and you sort of wrap that up into everything and then it's very, uh, you need a strong like impression of what the game is. And part of that is like aligning someone with like what the experience they're looking for and then being satisfied with the experience that they get. Because the longer that you're professional GMing or you're like running these ads for your service, the more you find you filter people less. Because the more established you become and the more reviews you get that say that you're a certain type of GM, people will look at that. And people will understand, like, as you refine your ad over time and you get more used to, like, running that game, that setting, that whatever, this is what the experience actually is. And am I the right player for that? People will self-select out if they're not um, more and more. Like, you have way more problems filtering through people when you start as opposed to, like, where I'm at, like, a year into it. And now I hardly ever remove people from my tables um, and if I do, it's like something actually happened, like where it was kind of a big deal. And like, we need to like put a pause on this campaign because like something happened due to circumstances. You know what I mean? So right. um, like, yeah, and, and that's and those are that's how to think about it. Well, cool. Yeah, this has been super duper useful. I hope we get to I feel like we got to do a sequel to this. We have there. It feels this conversation has felt boundless. Uh, <laughs> I almost feel this isn't even my podcast. It just feels like there has to be. We need to hang out. Uh, maybe that's what I'm saying. We should absolutely hang out and chat some more uh, just about life and stuff because uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for having me. I really, uh, this has been, uh, well, I wasn't sure what to expect because I don't really get to talk about the business side of things, especially not publicly very often. Yeah. But, uh, this has been, uh, this has been a hoot and a half, uh, <laughs> for sure. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me. You were like halfway through saying that and I was like, no, he's not going to say hoot nanny, is he? <laughs> no. A hoot and a half. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you're currently video frozen, but the audience can't see that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, uh, I can see myself moving, thankfully. Uh, so just imagine that I'm frozen. (laughs) Audience, imagine that I'm frozen smiling at you, slightly blurred. Thanks so much for listening to the Dollars and Dragons podcast. If you'd like to support me and, more importantly, my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here, then you can subscribe to patreon.com slash isfriday. And that is going to go straight to my editor. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.